What we're doing is uh, talking about the specific gods. What we're going to do for the, the, this day and the next day is we're going to talk about the specific gods that we are all still tempted to worship. We, even if we don't call them the same name, they're just as real to us today. We don't, we don't call the god of nationalism Zeus, but we're still worshiping the god of power, or Athena, the god of nationalism, or Aphrodite, the god of love, Dionysius, the god of pleasure, Hermes, the god of the marketplace, Apollo, the god of wisdom or knowledge, and they're just as real to us today. And so we're going to talk about Zeus, and then we're going to talk about Athena today. We're talking about two. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen this old Snickers commercials, the Hungry Why Wait commercials. You guys seen those, right? So the, the storyline is someone's doing something, they're acting a fool, and then someone says, you're not acting like yourself. Here's a Snickers bar, and all of a sudden they revert back to who they are. Now, it's a commercial that's lasted for years, partly because there's actually some science that supports it. Uh, there was a study done years ago of Israeli parole judges, Israeli parole judges, and they, they monitor and they follow them, and they found that the average Israeli parole judge approved 35% of the cases that they saw, 35%. But of those 35% of cases that were said, yes, you can get out of jail now, you're, you're up for parole, 65% of those cases happened within the first 15 to 30 minutes after their lunch break, or their breakfast break, or their mid-afternoon break. 65% happened right after their break, and then that number, 65%, declined all the way to 0% just before their next break. Which is why, if you're going to get arrested in Israel, carry a Snickers. Uh, Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel Prize winning uh, psychologist, and in his book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, which is an outstanding book. Any of you read that book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow? Okay, good thinking. Um, in his book, he says that the reason they do that, those judges, is because they revert back to what's easiest. Like, we're always reverting back to what we know. And he gave another example of American judges who served as a judge for 15 years. And he asks them, if a woman was caught shoplifting, how long should she go to jail for this small crime? But before they answer, they get dice, roll it, and they look at the number. And based on the number that is rolled, their answer is vastly different. If they roll and it's an eight, they're far more likely to say this woman needs to go to jail for like six to nine months. If they roll a three, the number's closer to two to four months. It's the anchoring heuristic is what he would call this. Because no matter who you are, your justice is always going to be influenced by things that maybe you're not aware of. Because our justice, whatever we call our justice to be, is never going to be as unbiased as we think it is. So we're going to talk about two gods today. And the first one is a god that is widely worshipped. Um, and we are almost entirely blind to it, except for the implications of it, right? So uh, the God, when people think of the ancient gods, the God of, of all the gods, the, the father of all those gods, what's his name? Yeah, you think of Zeus. Zeus was the God of power, um, the God of um, <clears throat> the God that got things done. So we went to all, all over ancient Greece. Well, we, it wasn't ancient when we got there, but the ruins of ancient Greece. And in the museums, one of the things we saw was uh, cursing tablets. Uh, like, you know, it, it was stuff 
that people would t write down, they would take to a temple and they would put it in there and it was like if somebody threw shade on them or it acted crazy to them, they would go to the gods and what was interesting, there's two things that were interesting. One was how blunt it was, like may they have a miscarriage or you know, may their husband cheat on them or something like that, how blunt it was. <clears throat> the other thing was it read like, and I kid you not about this, we were talking about it as we were re reading these things, it read like Facebook posts. It totally did. Um, <clears throat> so Zeus sounds like this foreign god that was totally unrelated to anything that you do, except when you start to realize it's related to almost everything we do. You know, back in the 60s, Stanford University had this study where they <clears throat> asked people, who are you most resistant to their, your children marrying? And back in the 60s in America, you can imagine that it was... Um, white people not wanting black, their kids to marry um, people of black skin. They, they did that survey again within the last couple of years. And you want to know what the answer was? Politics. They didn't want, parents do not want their kids to marry somebody who is of a different political affiliation. You want to know where your idolatry is? Watch where you're trying to get, where you're drawing the lines. Watch where you're saying, these people are out, these people are dirty, these people are unclean. Because there, you will almost always find a fight for power. By the way, this is one of the things Nietzsche said, and I do not think <clears throat> Christians take Nietzsche seriously enough. Because Nietzsche, in a post-Christian Europe, hundred and something years ago, looks out over Europe, and he says, you say that you're an atheist. All these people are, you know, it's in vogue to say that they're an atheist. And he says, you say you're an atheist, and then you say, but you shouldn't trample the rights of the poor. He's like, stop lying to yourself. You're a Christian. And not just that, but there's no good reason why you shouldn't trample the rights of the poor. This is strong, you know, rising above the weak. That's how the world gets stronger. And he called, like, the Jewish Christian ethic a slave morality. Basically, this idea that Nietzsche has that I don't think we have fairly grasped with is if there is no God, then how do we get to the place where we give the victim some kind of moral um, power? Here's what he says. And it, honestly, if there's no God, I don't know how you argue with him. He says that the Jewish people invented this story as slaves of a God that was on their side. That the Jewish people started telling these stories over and over again. And it got, they were really good at telling those stories. But it was all a power play. Because they were weak and on the margins. And it was their way of saying, hey, if you mess with us, we've got somebody who's on our side who will get you. That everything is really, there is no such thing as justice, Nietzsche would say. At least not like metaphysical justice. It's all the search for power. It's all ways to like try to get your way accomplished. And by the way, and this may be offensive. I don't, I don't know everybody in the room, but this may be offensive. <clears throat> um, have you noticed that for all the political rhetoric these days, it does not seem like no matter what happens, that no matter how anxious we get before elections, there's not much that changes. And, and no, at, at least for me, as people start using all these amped up rhetoric, do you ever sense, maybe this is just me being overly cynical about our political institutions, but do you ever sense that it's not the righteous cause that people care that much about as much as it is you listening to them and following them in it? That's what Nietzsche's talking about. That it's all a will to power. So that's, 
Christians make the best atheists. Yesterday we talked about how since the uh, 9-11 there's been this rise of the nuns. This group of people who have walked away from religion. They don't want to have anything to do with religion. But what we were finding after this you know, two decades of a social experiment is that the early Christians, they turned and spat against these ancient gods. And then they pledged their allegiance to King Jesus. And what we're finding is people are turning away from the God of Jesus. You can't turn away from something without turning towards something else. And what we are in fact doing, I have a hunch, is turning back towards the very thing the first Christians turned away from. And you can see this today. You can see it in our increased fear and anxiety and our rising hostility towards each other and our inability to listen. It's ironically a God as old as time itself and one that Christians have been from the beginning called to not worship. And in order to help you kind of see this, I'm going to tell you a story. And it's a bizarre little story that if you grew up in church, you heard before. But it's a story that starts like this. So the people of God come to the prophet Samuel and they say, we want, to be, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have a king like all the other nations. And even though um, before, <clears throat> before this they were a theocracy, which meant they were ruled by the law that God had given and by, and by prophets that God would raise up, but they don't want that. They want a king. So God gives it to them. God warns them, but ultimately God in the Bible, the worst thing he can do is give you what you want. And he does. He gives them a king. And what a king. Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel's history, was this, you know, tall, dark, and handsome, as if that stuff mattered. He was this tall, dark, and handsome guy, and he was well-respected. For the first couple of chapters in Saul's reign, he was doing really good stuff. Um, But like Adam and Eve before him, this power, that was a gift from God. Power is not just inherently bad. It was the first gift God gave Adam and Eve, but like Adam and Eve before him, Saul uses his power in bad ways. And God comes to Saul and says, because you have done this, I'm not going to let you stay king forever. And that causes Saul to lose his mind. Shortly after that, there's a new character that's introduced into the uh, story, um, King David. And King David is the opposite of Saul. He is not tall, dark, and handsome. When we first meet King David, it's kind of like the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. Because Samuel goes to Jesse's house and says, Hey, God says that one of your boys is going to be the next king. Can you bring him out? And so he brings out his oldest and his best looking and his strongest and all this. And finally he's like, No, God says it's not anybody of these. Do you have anybody else? And he's like, Well, I got this little boy that watches the sheep. So like, oh, well, let's try it. So he brings out David, and ultimately David is anointed as king. And, and David is going to replace Saul. Once he steps onto the pages of history, he rises like a meteor. He will um, start, you know, he fights giants. He, he quickly comes out as this brave kid who will lead, you know, armies into battle against bigger armies and stronger people. He comes out ahead again and again, but this isn't a story about King David. This isn't a talk about King David. I want to keep the focus today on King Saul because what Saul does when he realizes David's footsteps are behind him is, I think, indicative and relatable to every person in this room. And it is an indication of our temptation towards this idol. There's a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr. Anybody ever heard of Reinhold Niebuhr? He is the most prominent, influential American theologian that has ever really existed, most people think. He was the most um, influential theologian for Obama. Um, Obama quoted him at length. And 
Niebuhr, back in the 50, 1950s, Niebuhr is existing right after World War II happened, and you've got all these people in America and in the West who are scratching their head because they had you know, thought that basically things were just slowly evolving into this perfect utopia. And then all of a sudden, the rise of Hitler and this you know, extremely civilized, advanced, progressive state does things with this new technology like death camps. And so all these people are trying to scratch their head, wondering, like, well, I guess there is such a thing as evil. And they're trying to make sense of it. And Niebuhr's great insight in the 1950s was basically, he said, the, problem, the original sin is this. The, the reason we're all drawn to power, the reason we all want power, the reason that we're all, we're all so tempted to do such evil things is because every single one of us, and this is his great insight, every single one of us senses a sense of cosmic insecurity. We, 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 we have this sense of cosmic vulnerability, that we are vulnerable to the universe. And so the, the real temptation, Niebuhr says, of Adam and Eve was not to eat fruit that God said no. It was to take power and control over their own destiny. They did not want to be, it was not enough to be like God. They wanted to be God. Because they knew, they had this sense of cosmic insignificance, right? And, and um, so Niebuhr did that and says, the original sin is the only um, Christian doctrine that is empirically verifiable. Because every one of us feels this way. Um, <clears throat> about 12 years ago, I, when I worked in a church in Fort Worth, my buddy Bad Brad and I would go to this gym like a couple of times a month. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't much, but we went to this gym. and it, You can't laugh, okay? You can't laugh. <clears throat> Mr. Gym Muscles over here. Anyway, so we go to this gym, and at one point, there's this guy who is just giant. He's like 6'6". Six, six. He's got muscles on top of muscles. Every gym has somebody like this. He's the guy who screams out loud when he's benching and those kind of things. And I tend to stay away from people like that for the reason I'm about to tell you. So I'm in the locker room afterwards. Me and Bad Brad are in the locker room afterwards, and I take my gym bag out of the locker and I put it on, um, I put it on the bench behind me. What I did not know is that Mr. Muscle's bag was also on that bench and I accidentally knocked his bag off. And so this guy comes over, like a couple seconds later he comes over and he towers over. This guy who could sell shade for a living is now, you know, standing over me and Bad Brad and he goes, do we have a problem here? We're like, what? What are you talking about, man? Because I didn't even know I knocked the bag off. And he was like, my uh, bag, you, uh, you pushed it off. Do we need to step outside? And we were like, no. No, not, we want to stay in this very public, well-lit area to have this conversation. And then we realized, like, he thinks that we were, like, trying to do this on purpose for some reason. And so we, you know, we back down and we're like, no, 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 hey man, you, 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 if we saw you in a bear in a fight, we'd give the bear a stick. We don't want to mess with you. And <clears throat> so eventually he goes, uh, well, you know, some, some people like to pick on the big ones. And we're like, we assure you, sir, we are not those kinds of people. <laughs> and then, you know, when we're leaving, you know, our male egos kick in, me and Bad Brad, we're like, what we should have said. <laughs> what we should have said was, you're just lucky we're exhausted from our jazzercise class or we would have... <laughs> so Reinhold Niebuhr says that's the problem that every one of us have. There's a sense of cosmic insecurity that we all have. We're all vulnerable to that. Somebody's bigger, somebody's stronger, uh, and, and amplify that to countries and nations. We all want we, we are all pursuing control and power in so many ways. And here's the great irony of worshiping this God. 
you are not in control of almost any part of your life. Malcolm Gladwell, in his great book, Outliers, talks about how like 95% of your life you have no control over, right? Um, you didn't get to pick what you, you know, your, where you would be born, when you would be born, who your family was, what your genetic makeup would be, or the gifts you have. None of us did because we are not the powerful creatures we think we are. We are creatures dependent on the Creator. Um, some of us grew up with this view of God as a, a divine butler who exists to kind of supplement whatever ambitions you are. Um, and, and, and this view, and this is a common view, literally thinks pr- or pretends that we are the master of our own souls, the captain of our fate, right? Um, but don't you know, really, reality is way more complicated than that. Um, and what uh, appears to be like plain luck is a gift from God. I mean, how, how many of us, when we hit, you know, middle age, even though we pretended like we were, you know, our family of origin had nothing to do with who we were or what we were going to do, when you hit middle age, all of a sudden it real, you realize, I do this just like my dad. I do this just like my mom. It had way more influence over you. And, and more to the point, for those of us who have this mentality of like, I pulled myself up from my own bootstraps. Here's a point. If you were born in a yurt in outer Mongolia, you would not be sitting in Malibu, California today. You would not have the level of success that you have. You would not have the, you would not have the life that you have. The a whole point in that book of, of Gladwell's is that we're not as personally responsible as we think for the successes and the place that we are in life. And Paul said this thousands of years ago. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul says, My brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself um, and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what's written. Written. Then you will not be proud, you will not be puffed up um, in being a follower of the one of one of us over the other. So there are factions of groups that are saying, this Christian leader is better, I like listening to this guy more. I mean, imagine a world like that. And he's saying to them, look, 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 don't be proud. Don't be proud like, ah, hey, I follow this guy, I, I, I like that preacher more than the other. And he says, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Um, his whole point is, we, everything we've got has been a gift, including the amount of power that you have in your life. And for those of us who are so busy pursuing power, God forbid we get some of it. So back to Saul. Saul is watching David's popularity grow and grow, and after a while it begins to bother him, especially after this happens. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And they danced and sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David's is tens of thousands. Saul didn't like that song. Saul said, they have credited David with tens of thousands. That's my Luke Norsworthy voice. They have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but his kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. When Saul first started out as king, people loved him. He was their champion, right? They used to sing about how great of a king he was. And now when this becomes the, you know, the hit, when people start singing this song, he cannot handle it. And so he has to do something about it. 
So Saul knows that David is a poor kid that does not have any means and resources. And he also knows that his daughter, Michael, has an eye for David and that David has an eye for Michael. And so he comes up with this scheme to get rid of David. He goes to David and he says, hey, I know you don't have the money for the bride price, which is an ancient custom that they had back in the day, but I will take something else. The Philistines were like uh, the, the North Koreans or the Russians or whoever come to your mind when you think of the, the people that you're the most afraid of. They were the people that they fought with all the time. They were close neighbors too. And Saul says, instead of a bride price, what I would accept for a bride price from you, young David, is the foreskin of a hundred Philistine men. You know, just like when you registered at Target. <clears throat> and so David goes out there, and it's obviously a setup, right? Like, because those guys aren't just going to give that to him. And so it's going to get him killed. So he's sending him into a war that he can't win, and David goes out and comes back, not with 100, but 200. The things we do for love, right? And now Saul's stuck. Because he has just allowed David to marry into the royal family, making him one step closer to the throne. And so Saul, he can't sleep at night. He begins to get more and more anxious as he hears the footsteps getting closer and closer. And finally, after weeks of his stewing on his jealousy and anxiety and all these you know, sleepless nights, Saul decides he's just going to cut to the chase and he's going to kill David. So Jonathan comes in. Jonathan, who I think is really one of the best-named characters in the Bible. And um, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan liked David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. And I'll speak to him about you. And I'll tell you what I find out. And he's basically saying, look, Dad, David's not gunning for your job. David's always been loyal. And he settles Saul back down for a little bit. But eventually... That kind of jealousy, this kind of <clears throat> power worship, it just can't be stuffed back. He can't stand living in the shadow of a stinking kid. And so one day Saul just loses his stinking mind. He, uh, after David come, comes back, Saul starts chunking spears at his head. And you know you've overstayed your welcome when someone is chunking a spear at your head. And so David goes back to his home where he lives with um, Saul's daughter, Michael. And Saul is so ready to end this story. He goes and breaks in. He sends some guys to go break in to his daughter's home to kill David while he sleeps. Here's the scene. Verse 11, it says, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent them the next day to capture David, Michael said, he's ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered there, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. And Saul said to his daughter, why did you deceive me? If you're paying attention, this is totally the screenplay to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But what I want you to notice is the very thing that Saul is the most anxious and afraid about is the very thing that he is slowly bringing about. You can apply that to your politics if you'd like to. But it certainly is true. The very thing that we are the most anxious about 
when we worship power, we bring about. So let's do this on a more personal level. I have a modest amount of power in my job and at home. I'm nothing special, but I do have a season in life where there, what I think or what I say has some influence on other people. And I can also tell you, I slept much better when I grew up poor, without any power. This is what Reinhold Niebuhr would say, that people who are, uh, have a drive for power are very fearful and anxious. And actually, he says the fear and anxiety are the reason we search out for power. But if, you, it's not, if it's not the reason you're looking for power, I promise you, it comes when you get some. Because immediately, you're in other people's crosshairs. Can, can you see how Saul ruins his own life in this story? His kids don't love him. His kids don't trust him. Every time he goes after David, his kingdom slips further and further away from his hands. And then finally, at the end of the story, he goes to kill David and they pull back the sheets and it reveals what it always had been. An idol. Something Saul had put ultimate importance on. And before you go making this a Bible story, I want you to remember your own life. There's a conservative magazine, an article I read a few years ago uh, in the Weekly Standard called The Spiritual Shape of, of Political Ideas. And it talked about in that how the very language that we use in our politics, uh, while we have turned away from the God of Jesus, we use the same language in our politics. So we don't believe in original sin anymore, but we believe in privilege. And we don't say, you know, like, confess your sin. We say, check your privilege. And it's not like those things are real. But it's, it's become, there's a certain level of blasphemy, there's a certain level of sacredness. We're not long worried about the end of the world and facing God at the final judgment. Now we're worried about global Armageddon and North Korea and nuclear war. And my point in telling you this is not to make political points. It's to remind us that turning away from something is always turning towards something else. Idols always take away what they say they're going to give you. They promise you everything for nothing, and they ultimately give you nothing and take everything. Saul is going to wind up dead along with his entire family because he's fixated on this power that he's got. But Saul's not the only one to do this. Remember, David does this. When David has power, David, you know, he cheats, he sleeps with another woman who's married, and then he sins, he does to Uriah what Saul did to him. He's just better at it. This is the shame of thrones. Whatever power we have, we fight and fight and fight to keep and if you worship this God, and I imagine there's a temptation in everybody in this room to worship this God, it's why we're so anxious. You'll always worry about not getting power. You'll always worry about losing the power you have. About, and the people around you that you love, guess what? They don't feel loved. They feel controlled. And what's worse, and it really is worse, you won't be able to appreciate the modest amount of authority and power you actually have. So Andy Crouch was this... Um, college minister in uh, Harvard for decades and he said there were three kinds of students he saw come through Harvard. One was the achievers who come to your mind when you think of Harvard students. The, the second are legacy kids. These are the kids that, um, you know, the, their last name is on a dorm, right? But then the third kind of kid was the kid that never planned on going to Harvard until like right before the um, high school ended, some counselor said, you, you should consider you know, putting your resume or your uh, applying to Harvard. And he said, these kids did the best at life. They got the most rewards because they were less anxious than the achievers and they weren't as entitled as the legacy kids. And Andy calls those kids children of grace because for them, every day at Harvard was a gift of joy.
They weren't planning on being there. And then Andy goes on to say, do you realize how many, and this is, they were blind to this, every one of the students were blind to this, how many lotteries you had to win just to get to be at Harvard? A thousand lotteries that they never even were aware they were playing. Most kids who are in Harvard are the first or only born. Most kids at Harvard um, come from a, a family where their whole family is intact. They're also born with families with means. Just means, just to apply at Harvard, mean they won a thousand lotteries they did not even know they were playing. They were all children of grace. They just didn't know it. You want to know what Saul was before this? He was a donkey herder. That's what he did. He goes from being a poor donkey herder to a king. It was all a gift from God. And... um, One of the points I'd like to make to you here is the great antidote to power worship is gratitude and worship of the true God. So here's how this has worked in my life. I grew up poor. The church that I grew up in took out a loan. I was going to be a construction worker. They took out a loan for me to go to Harding. And I was homeschooled my whole life. You know, when I first got to Harding, I was not what you would call socially ready now, people are everywhere, and I'm not related to almost anybody. And first week of being at Harding, um, Rich Little, my freshman Bible teacher, says, Hey, the president of Harding is starting a prayer group, and I'd like you to come to that. And here's the thing. I had no experience. I wasn't networking. I didn't know you should try to do those kind of things. This is my first time ever in a classroom. So I go to this prayer group, <clears throat> A couple of years later, there's this church in Fort Worth that calls Harding, and they ask if they have any suggestions for somebody who could be an intern. And Dr. Burks, the president, gives them my name. I didn't know that was happening. I did not know about the church, this really big church that I'd never heard of. It. And then, if that wouldn't have happened, I wouldn't have become Rick Ashley's associate. And I certainly wouldn't be preaching at the church that I am now in Abilene. And for me, whenever I get anxious, what if I lose? What if I... The great antidote for that is the realization that this was all a gift. Always. I never thought I would do any of this stuff. The gift, the antidote to power is gratitude. To realize what you have been given already. And worship of the one true living God who gave it to you. And it's only yours for a season. And so would you do yourself a favor? And then we're going to switch into the next God. But would you do yourself a favor? The next time you're in a room and you're the smartest person in the room. The next time you're in a room and you're the, you know, the person who... Uh, you, you got the raise, you got the promotion, you drove a car that everybody else couldn't drive. You live in a home where everybody else couldn't live. You have that degree where other people couldn't get into... Would you do yourself a favor and in that moment would you remind yourself of two things? One, I am going to die. This is just temporary. And would you remind yourself of how much this is just a gift? We are all children of grace. Because we are all children of God. Okay, now we're going to take a hard shift to another God that we think is actually just as relevant to today. Okay. You want to start talking? Yeah, so we just talked about uh, Zeus. 
Right behind me is arguably the most impressive part of the Acropolis, a uh, structure that's been around for 2,400 years. Uh, the stones used to build this were carried some 10 miles uh, from a mountain just across the way to build this. Uh, it's the Parthenon, which means the temple to the virgin goddess. It's referring to Athena, uh, the patron god of Athens. And her birth story is a little bit weird. Uh, her father, Zeus, uh, swallowed her mother while she was pregnant with her. Uh, Athena was later, uh, later burst forth from Zeus's forehead, uh, fully grown, uh, which is kind of weird. And, uh, but she came from Zeus's forehead, which signifies what she's all about, which is wisdom. In a lot of ways, uh, Athens saw themselves as the wise people. I mean, this is the birth of democracy. The Western culture comes from the city of wisdom. Uh, there's a story about Hercules, the uh, hero in Greek mythology, the person who slayed uh, countless monsters, boars, hydras, what have you not. Um, but the belief was that Hercules was a metaphor for Greece herself. Uh, they believed themselves to be the people to bring humanity out from the dark ages, from a monstrous reality in which uh, humanity was nothing. But Greece, moved itself forward, and Athens was the patron city, the, the leading city of this Western culture of democracy. And, and one of the things you miss in the English pronunciation of this town, Athens, you miss that this is the actual town of Athena. The town itself is the god, and the god itself, in a lot of ways, is the town. Uh, in some ways, the god Athena is almost the god of me, uh, the god of people worshiping where they're from and who they are, and their identity has become their deity. Now, I know this is something that we can connect to, the idea of people who deify where they live and thinking it is in itself worth, worth worshiping. But enough about Athens. I'm ready to get back home to God's country, Texas. Yeah, so I, yeah, you saw that Texas Forever shirt. Thanks for noticing. Uh, so I'm staying uh, right now with a friend of mine named Pat Bills. And you know Pat Bills is from Dallas. Uh, or he lives in Dallas, but he's actually from Tennessee. And so I hear him say this all the time, that he is on the mission field, leaving Tennessee to come to Texas, a mission field of Texas. And all of us Texas people are like, why don't you just volunteer to go home? Like, this is not, this is not a mission field. This is an upgrade. Um, and so it's fitting that people, someone from Texas is going to talk about nationalism. It's just like we in Texas, like, we have our own map, where it's basically Texas and ain't Texas. Like, that's, <laughs> that's how we view this. And there's a background right there. Uh, and so there's no other place. So actually, I'm not from Texas. I was born in Philadelphia. Uh, my dad taught at uh, Northeastern Christian Junior College, small Church of Christ school in the Northeast. Then he taught at Ohio Valley College. And so I, I moved around, <coughs> lived in six or seven states. And Texas is the only state that people actually know what their state flag looks like, it seems like. You never see someone flying the flag of Utah, all right? Like, I, I actually did that once. I said, that, hey, no one knows the flag except for Texas, and no one has a Utah flag. Like, I said that, and behind me, I was at a Christian school in Dallas, and they had a flag of Utah right behind me. And so all the kids are like, oh, yeah, we, we do have Utah flag. And I want to be like, you have that up as a sign of your, like, fidelity to Christ, that you went to Utah for a week-long short-term mission trip, and you're proud of yourself for leaving Texas, okay? Let's not act like you love Utah. <laughs> it's like, oh, we did this for Jesus. Um, but the thing is, it's easy to fall in love with where you live, especially 
when it's something that you like. And the temptation is always to lose the right order of your loves. The temptation is to lose the right order of your loves. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a text in Matthew 10 where Jesus tells the disciples, we want you to be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents. Now, I, I think a lot of things about serpents. I'm not a big fan of them. Uh, I don't like snakes. And I've thought many things. I've never thought of a serpent as shrewd or smart or intelligent. But do you know who does think that about serpents? People in Greece. If you look at a statue of Athena, there's typically two birds that are associated with her. A serpent usually wrapped around a leg and an owl on her shoulder. Because a serpent was the wisdom of the ground and an owl was the wisdom of the air. So Jesus says, we want you to be wise as serpents. And they go, oh yeah, we, we've seen the person who personifies intelligent with a serpent around her head. Uh, like I said in the video, the story of Hercules, actually it's pronounced Heracles, but I hate to be the guy who corrects people's pronunciation. No one likes that guy. And he's a character who kills all these countless beasts, right? Like it's a nine-headed hydra, boars, these things you've never even heard of. And often people believe that this was a metaphor for Greece herself, that Greece was the hero who rescues the beastly reality of the Dark Ages, right? So the Dark Ages, humanity just kind of lost the ability to read. From 1,000 to 500 BC, people just gave up reading. Scholarship almost evaporated overnight. And Greece is what brought it back. Athens were the people who returned civilization to where they were supposed to be. And one of the things that we miss in the Greek pronunciation of the capital of Greece, which is Athens, is that it's actually Athena. Like That's how you actually pronounce the name of the city. So when you talk about the goddess Athena, it would be like saying it's the goddess Texas, right? Like it's, it's not, the subtlety is not there. It's straightforward. The God is the place that they worship. But then again, it's easy to worship God. Right? Athens did a lot. It's the birthplace of democracy. Uh, do we have any uh, Colin Cowherd fans in the room? He's a sports guy. Yes, you've heard him. Uh, so I heard him do a rant about why Texans are arrogant. Now, that's a subject that I'm interested in, so I was like, oh, let's see what he has to say. And so his argument is this, and he's not a Texan. I don't know where he lives, but he's not a Texan. He's not one of us. Um, he says, the reason Texans are arrogant is because it's kind of better. Like, if you took the price of a house here in Malibu, however much it is, like, you get one of the, like, a house right on PCH. Like, it's like a $5 million house, and it's like the size of a closet. And you take five million, and you go to Texas, like you own 200 acres. Lifestyle's easier. Property value's lower, right? The economy is very solid. It's almost like recession-proof. That's what people say about the Dallas economy. So it's easy to worship when something is good. The birthplace of democracy in 6 BC, like Athens and Greece, they, they move everything forward. So, of course, there's going to be a temptation for them to forget, even when they're Christians, that your citizenship is not in heaven, but it's, you think it's here. Because here is so good. It's easy to lose the right order 
of your loves. So there's a story about a guy named Jonah. You've heard it before. He's told to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Now, Assyria were the evil enemies of the Israelites. According to one source, Jonathan just told me this. I don't know if it's true or not. But he told me this, that the Assyrians were known to skin their enemies alive. And they had perfected this technique where they would keep them alive as long as possible while skinning them. And this is the kind of stuff that the Israelites experienced because they were on the other side of the Assyrian Empire. These are the people that, that took them down and that destroyed them. And God tells Jonah to go to the capital of Assyria. And so he runs, right? And, and you can imagine that the first people who are hearing the story of Jonah the prophet running away from where God tells him to go are saying, Jonah, that's the right thing to do. Like, you're doing the right, you don't want to go there. But the reason Jonah fled is not because he was afraid of bodily harm from the Assyrians. Or if it was, that's not in the text. The text doesn't say it's that way. Jonah runs not from the bodily harm that he fears the Assyrians would give to him. He's afraid of the boundless love that God would give to the Assyrians. Let me read this text to you from Jonah chapter 3. Jonah's preaching, and the amazing thing happens. Like, people actually listen to what he said. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ash. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth. And they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways, from the violence that is in their hand. So the king orders everyone to be in sackcloth and ashes. Rich, poor, men, women, even animals. Now, most of you will get kind of what the writer's doing with that. Where I'm from in Austin, they're like, eh, it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, the, the animals got to do their thing because we keep it weird in Austin. But everyone else goes, huh, even the animals? Like, there's humor in this. This is supposed to be... Uh, a statement of the hyperbole of how much they respond. Like, they're really into what Jonah said. But Jonah's response is the exact opposite you would expect. Chapter 4, verse 1. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country. This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The point of the story is your nice little circle of who are special and deserving of God doesn't fit around who God loves. Anne Lamont famously said that you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. Because it's easy for us to go, you know what, this, this group right here, this, this is my people, this is the special people, these are your people that I like. But God has always been saying it's bigger than that. Even the people you least want it to be. Uh, there's an article in the Atlantic that we referenced uh, yesterday. And it says this, For decades, liberals have called the Christian right intolerant. 
When conservatives disengage from organized religion, however, they don't become more tolerant. They become intolerant in different ways. Research shows the evangelicals who don't attend church are less hostile to gay people than those who do, but they're more hostile to African Americans, Latinos, and Muslims. In 2008, the University of Iowa's Benjamin Knoll noted that among Catholics, mainline Protestants, and born-again Protestants, the less you attend church, the more anti-immigrant you were. We found that people become less tolerant when they stop going to church, even though sometimes we say church is the most segregated hour of the week. Because there's some story about God pulling things bigger than what we want to do. We want to say, oh, I love my country, and I love my nation, and I love my state, and I love people who see the world my way, and God is always pulling it to be bigger than that. I mean, this is the story of the Tower of Babel. Like, in the beginning, sin divides people. Right? Like, everyone had one language, Tower of Babel, their hubris destroys humanity's community. But the Spirit in Acts 2, like, Spirit-empowered living teaches people to communicate even if they don't have the same language. God's Spirit is pulling everyone together. And this isn't easy. Like, even the Jewish people, God said, you're going to be the light to the Gentiles so that my salvation reaches the end of the earth. But these are the same people that Jesus has to tell the story of the Good Samaritan to. Because time and time again, we want to bring it back to just us. But all along, God is saying, no, it's bigger than this. It's bigger than just the people that you love just like you. On September 15, 1963, at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, there was what Dr. King called one of the most vicious and tra tragic crimes ever perpetuated against humanity. Four members of the KKK planted sticks of dynamite in the 16th Street Baptist Church, injuring 22 people and killing four. KKK is a movement that is antithetical to the message of Christ. They are a terrorist organization under the name of Christianity. And they said, we, we don't want these people here. Heinous crime, but at least they got one thing right. They knew that church is the place that their hatred and their small-mindedness doesn't fit. That what they're doing is antithetical to the message of God. God is always making it bigger, even if we are just like the people who worship Athena and say, I'm just going to worship me because we're good and we're smart and we're doing this right. Now, let me give you definitions for two words. These are just my definitions. But patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism, my definition, is that it is the love of your neighbor in macro. It, it, it's loving your neighbor on a grand scale. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.8 that anyone who does not provide for relatives, especially for family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Patriotism is loving your neighbor in a grand scale. Nationalism is loving only your neighbor. Patriotism is we're, we're going to love our neighbor like God wants us to in a big scale, but nationalism is what Jonah had. I'm just going to love my neighbors. Just the people like us. And the temptation to worship the goddess Athena for us today, it's not the same. It's not like it, America versus Canada. Because like, I mean, come on. If you laugh, you're a sinner. All right, that was a, a, that was a test. You're worshiping Athena if you laugh at that joke. 
that's not us versus like Canada. That's not us versus like Britain, right? Like that's not. The temptation for us is our view of our own country. Like Jonathan said earlier, years ago, we don't want our kids marrying someone of a different ethnicity. And now parents fear our kids marrying someone of a different political persuasion. The vision for the direction of our country has become our own version of nationalism, where we elevate, and again, this is about disordered loves. I, let me say this up front. We're going to talk about Aphrodite tomorrow. And we're not going to say that you can't think sex is a good thing. We're going to say that it can be abused and become a bad thing. In the same way that I'm going to say caring for your country and the direction and your political affiliation, it, it's okay, but it can become a disordered love, and it can move from patriotism, which is a healthy thing, to nationalism when your loves get out of order. For many of us, we're just like Athens. They brought democracy into the, into the Western culture, in the Persian War of uh, 499 BC, the free people of the Greek city-state fought and defeated the slaves of the Persian Empire. And for them, the future of civilization was on this first ever free nation. People fighting, not because they were slaves, but because they were a part of this, this free democracy. They were fighting for the direction of the future of the world. And many of us feel that same way about our politics. That the hope of the world is our politics. And, and you can have strong convictions that your party and your candidate is better and that theirs is bad for the country. You can obviously think that. But are you willing to still sit at the table with someone who disagrees with you? Are you still willing to sit in the same pew with them and pass the sacraments? The question is, what is the order of your loves? Let me give you a litmus test. When you see a problem, when there is an issue, do you only see it in the current popular political rhetoric? Is that the only way you see it? Uh, at our church in Austin at Westover, we did a series through the book of Ruth. And I had a friend who just was working with uh, World Vision to shoot some footage uh, for their uh, Syrian refugee crisis response. And so the idea of, of uh, Ruth that I wanted to kind of tell it this way is that she's a Moabite woman who left her homeland because of a famine. And so she's, in some ways, a refugee. And so the bumper video I showed was from my friend's footage of the Syrian refugee crisis. So he's in, like, 20 miles away from Damascus. He's in these camps, and some great footage. And so I use that as a background. And I'm not saying, like, this is the direct uh, course of action that every Christian should make to this crisis. I just said this is a background that helps us see Ruth's experience. And someone says, I didn't come to church to hear this political stuff. Like it, the fact that there are people who are fleeing their homeland and they help us to see a biblical story come to life, that becomes a political issue for you? Uh, often the reason that the only language we have is the current language that we hear about in the political sphere is because we are more discipled by cable news than we are by Jesus. We give more of the affections of our heart to Hannity or Shep Smith or it's Colbert or it's a piece on Breibart, whatever it is. We give them more of our time than we do Jesus. Like simply put, are you spending more time on CNN.com or FoxNews.com than you are in Scripture? Like we 
disciple ourselves more by these things. And so, of course, our language becomes that because from the overflow of your heart, that's what the mouth speaks. There is not a problem with saying, I think Fox News or CNN have a better picture of how the country is going and what we should know. The question is when that order becomes incorrect and that becomes to have more supremacy than Jesus in your life. Because what happens is whenever there is a political issue, whether it's months ago, it's the kneeling issue with professional athletes, whether it's how we respond to gun violence, what we do about immigration, and if the person next to you in the seat has a different conclusion from you, if all of a sudden you go, you know, I really don't want to be sitting next to you in church. It's fine to have a commitment for this is what I think is best for our country. But when that becomes the deciding factor for how I can have community and connection to the people around me, what you've done is you worship the goddess Athena. Because that has supremacy in your life to the message of Jesus. Uh, there's a character um, named Narcissus, a character in Greek mythology who's this uh, hunter, uh, a, a young boy, a young man, he's a hunter, he's known for his beauty in a lot of ways. A lot of people are probably thinking of Jonathan for obvious reasons. And he's this, this good-looking guy, and he goes out and he sees um, his reflection in a pond. Right? There's a painting by Caravaggio in which he's just staring at and he's mesmerized. Now, there's another story, uh, there's another character named Echo, who's this, this beautiful young woman who professes her love to Narcissus, but Narcissus doesn't hear it, and so she feels rejected, and so she kind of withdraws to a cave until she completely has withdrawn from humanity, until all she is is just a faint echo of what she once was. So she loses love because Narcissus' obsession with himself. And on the other side of the story, Narcissus sees his reflection and can't leave. So he just, he, he dies because he's so mesmerized with what he sees in the reflection of the water. Scripture tells us, don't be like a person who looks at themselves in a the mirror, forgets, and has to keep coming back. Like, you, you, you don't want to be that. You don't want to see the beauty of where you are and go, man, this really is the best. I, I really love America. I love being a Republican. I love being a Democrat. And you see it, and all you see is that love. And what you end up doing is you die because you miss the real love. The issue is disordered loves. Like Athens, our country has been good for lots of people. And it's easy to believe that we are holders of all the wisdom and that we are the best. We love our country so much that we are tempted to forget whose we actually are. When Paul writes to the Philippians that your citizenship is in heaven, he's writing to people who have a lot of reason to be proud of where they live. And for us, it's very easy for us to do the same thing. But don't do it, because you end up like narcissists, and you miss real love because you're so fascinated with what you're a part of right now. Christians make the best atheists. Because we've learned to turn away from false gods. And these are false gods not in the sense that they don't exist. But they're false gods because they don't give life. There are all these voices around us tempting us to give our love and affection to. 
Learn to be a good atheist because you don't give your affection to them. You only give them to the one true God. Amen? Thank you for being with us this morning. You're dismissed.